What a joyful morning we've already had. Praise the Lord. And it's great to hear the choir singing, wonderful choir this morning. And we're getting louder as we fill up the room. That's always nice to, to hear. It's best to sit on the front two rows, then you get to hear everyone behind you. Don't move towards the back, move towards the front in church. Open your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Romans. We are looking at this wonderful epistle, this wonderful letter written by the Apostle Paul. And we've been in it for some time. We've been working our way through it. We do what's called expository preaching here, where we take a passage of Scripture, open it up, explain it, then apply it. Because that's how God inspired, for example, the book of Romans to be written, which was passage by passage connected together to make what we call chapters, and that makes up the whole book. And so we're looking today at a new section in Romans. We're looking at Romans 9. And the first few verses, just the first five verses today of Romans 9. But this is a new unit in Paul's thought in Romans. We've looked previously at the three sections. Verse 1, chapter 1, all the way through the end of chapter 8. That made up three sections. So first of all, you had the letter opening. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. That's just Paul introducing who he is, why he's writing this letter, what he wants to do. He wants to come and see them. And he's writing the letter to explain to them the gospel, the righteousness of God. And he says, well, let's just look at it because you need to get the theme of the book back in your head. It's been a couple of years, but I have touched on it a few times since then. Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed, he says, of the gospel. Here's the theme of Romans. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What's the main point he's going to get across in the letter? For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. So that ends the opening of the letter. Then he goes into the second major section, 118 through 425. That's called the heart of the gospel. Justification by faith alone. He says in chapter, the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, how sinful mankind is. Whether it's Gentile or Jew, we're all sinners. We need the righteousness of God to be saved. And that's where he ends off this section. And the end of chapter 3, all through chapter 4, he explains justification by faith alone. That God declares the sinner righteous based on Christ's perfect righteousness, who takes away all of our sin, all of our guilt, if we have faith in him. And then chapters 5 through 8 are the third major section in the letter. And there... Paul provided the assurance that the gospel gives, the effects of justification, that we can have assurance, that we know we have peace with God, that no one can separate us from the love of Christ, that nothing can separate us from our salvation in Christ. If you have faith alone in Christ alone, he says in that whole section, we cannot lose our salvation. And now we come to this fourth major section. It's called This is coming from Douglas Moo in his commentary, but I like the outline, so I'm taking it. The defense of the gospel, election, Israel, and God's promises. That's chapters 9, 10, and 11. Then in 12, he'll start applying it all and going into how we live out these truths. So what is happening here in chapters 9 through 11? Some people will say you can just skip 9 through 11 and jump to chapter 12. So Paul must have just introduced some sort of parenthetical thoughts. 
he's just put in what, what scholars call an excursus, where they go off on a rabbit hole or a tangent, and he's put that in there. But it does connect to what we just finished looking at in chapter 8 last week. You see, there, Paul said that God keeps his promises. That every person who has faith in Christ knows, without a doubt, according to the scripture, we can know that we have eternal security. Even if you maybe have been taught another way and don't believe that, the Bible says it's true. A true believer is eternally secure. And if you believe, as the scripture says, you will have assurance. You will have assurance. But the big question comes up, even though Paul said nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and he based that upon God's electing love, his foreloving, his foreknowledge, his predestining love. Paul said nothing can separate us from the love of God because God has loved us in eternity past. But there's still a huge question left. What about Israel? The Bible says that God elected them. They were chosen by God, and yet they seem to be set aside. As God is building his church, there's a lot more Gentiles coming in, in Paul's day and today, than we might expect if we just read the Old Testament. What about Israel? Did God fail to keep his promises? That's what he's going to answer in chapters 9 through 11. This huge objection. If God can be trusted to keep his promises, then what has happened to Israel? Has God abandoned them? Has God replaced them? Has God done away with them? He doesn't seem to have fulfilled those promises right now, at least, that he said he would in the Old Testament. So that's what Paul is going to address. And he's going to get even deeper into the doctrine of election to talk about that. And he's going to talk about the need to take the gospel to those who do not believe. And we know this is his theme here. Just look at chapter 9. We'll look at his introduction today in verses 1 through 5, but look at verse 6. Here's the question he's setting out to answer. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God gave Israel all of these things, but it's not as if though the word of God has failed. Now skip forward. That's how he starts the section. One of the ways you determine a main theme and a section or passage of scripture is to look at the beginning and look at the end. So go to chapter 11 and let's pick up just an 11.1 here. It's not the very end, but the last chapter of this section. I say then, God, has God rejected his people? May it never be. And he goes on to talk about himself being an Israelite and he is saved. So there is a remnant even now. But skip down to 11.25. For I do not want you, brothers to be uninformed of this mystery. He's talking to the church in Rome. There's Jewish believers there. There's Gentile believers there. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, of this mystery, this thing that was hidden, but now has been brought to light so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Then he backs it up with an Old Testament quote. Let's go further down just before he, he finishes this out with a doxology. 33 through 36 is a doxology, a praise to God the Father. Look at here, verse 28. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, God's election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So that's why we can say this is about election, Israel, and God's promises. But really, if we back out and look at the 30,000 foot view we are looking at the defense of the gospel. Is God really faithful? 
Is God really faithful? And Paul sets out to write in these three chapters that God is faithful. That just because all Israel is not saved now doesn't mean he's not faithful. And he goes on to even tell us what's going to happen in the future. So let's look at this first paragraph here in, verse, in chapter 9 verses 1 through 5. He opens a section with an introduction. And he's describing his great concern for Israel. His burden that he has for his people. That's why I've entitled the sermon you'll see in your bulletin. A burden for lost Israel. He doesn't start off with a theological statement really. He doesn't start off with the question that he's going to state there in verse 6. Has God really abandoned his people? Is his word actually true? That's an important thing that he'll go into. But first he starts off with how much he loves his people. He has a great burden for them. Even though his own people have been given all these promises he's going to list, they are separated from Christ. They're separated from Christ. They're promised Messiah. So he's going to show us with three great truths here how much he loves his people, the burden he has for lost Israel. Let me read this to you here. Romans 9, 1 through 5. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul here is describing his great burden for lost Israel. The first truth I want you to see is found in the first two verses. Verses 1 and 2 show sorrow for the unbelief of Israel. Paul doesn't skate around this. He just states it outright. And he's going to, first of all, give his own feelings. Not feelings like we talk today but his deep emotions in his heart. Those kinds of true, biblically oriented feelings that he has for his people. I'm telling the truth, he says, in Christ. I'm not lying. So he's going to give three witnesses here. First, he's going to tell us about he himself speaking the truth in Christ. He states it in the positive, I'm telling the truth. And in the negative, I'm not lying. He is speaking truth. He's not fabricating lies. You see, many Jews in Rome, even Christian Jews, might have thought Paul was very anti-Jewish. Everywhere he shows up, there's a riot. There's a mob after him of Jews trying to kill him. He seems to stir up in every city. He's preaching the gospel according to faith in Christ, not by works. He's saying some things like we're not under the law. It sounds very anti-Jewish. And Paul is just starting off by saying he's going to clear the air on that subject I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth about what I'm about to say. He had been preaching the gospel to Gentiles. He'd been planting churches throughout Greece, Macedonia, Asia Minor. Paul, you don't seem to be very Jewish in your proclamation. So he says, I'm telling the truth about what I'm going to say. I'm not lying. And he's saying, this is the truth in Christ. I'm in Christ. He says, I'm an apostle sent by Christ. Christ, remember, called Paul to salvation and immediately gave him a mission, made him an apostle and sent him out. He trained up more with Christ in the desert, I believe, for three years. But then he went out planting churches. And the Jews always were stirring up because they said, Paul, you're teaching against the Bible. You're teaching against the Old Testament. Do you remember in Acts 
21, when he goes into Jerusalem, he's going up to the temple and the Jews come after him and they start a riot. And they say, now, when these seven days, this is a writer, Luke, writing in Acts 21, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon noticing him in the temple, began to throw all the crowd into confusion. They laid hands on Paul, crying out, men of Israel, help. So all the fellow men of Israel, he says, help. We're going to get Paul. This is the man, they say, who teaches to everyone everywhere against our people and the law in this place. He's against the Jews. He's against our people. He's against this place, the temple. Start a big riot. They arrest him. The Romans eventually take him. The soldiers, they're going to whip him. He says, I'm a citizen. He eventually appeals to Caesar. And that's how he gets to Rome. He says in the letter here to the Romans, I want to come see you. He had no idea how that was going to go, of course. He gets arrested. Two years later, he ends up in Rome. Free ride, funded by the empire to get there. And then he gets to proclaim the gospel to Caesar and all of Caesar's household. So Paul is reassuring his Jewish Christian readers here in this part of the letter saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And now he brings another witness out. He says, my conscience testifies with me. It testifies, it provides confirming evidence to what he's saying. The conscience is that faculty that God has given us that tells us right from wrong. And he says, my conscience, my knowledge, my wisdom at practicing right and not doing the wrong. My conscience, it tells me, it's, it's like a, a little radar that tells me if I'm going off course or not. He says, it testifies with me. He's saying, I'm an apostle. And I am testifying with my conscience on this truth. Now, if he's not telling the truth, that throws his whole apostleship into question, doesn't it? And Paul's saying, look, in Christ, I'm telling the truth. And my conscience testifies with me. And now he brings out the third witness in the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to have your conscience pricking you and telling you when you're doing something wrong. But my conscience that's been sanctified, he's saying, in the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't believe necessarily an unbeliever who says something about their conscience. A believer you're more likely to trust when it comes to their sense of right and wrong. But Paul says, I have the Spirit who is confirming and sanctifying me. And with my conscience, that Spirit also is testifying to the truth. So what is it? What is it that he's asking these three witnesses? His his truth in Christ, his conscience, and his Holy Spirit that is within him. What is he asking them to testify to? Well, that's in verse 2. The great sorrow for lost Israel. He says, I have a great sorrow. This word sorrow in Greek means a, a pain of mind or spirit, an affliction that he's going through. And he has this affliction because the Jewish people, for the most part, had rejected Christ. He is a Jew. He knows the Jews. His family is Jewish. His whole clan is Jewish. The whole nation of Israel He has a great sorrow because they have rejected Christ, their Messiah. And then he says, an unceasing grief in my heart. Look, he says it two different ways. A great sorrow and unceasing, it never stops grief in his heart. And the innermost being, that's what the heart is in the Bible. It's the innermost being. He has a grief, a state of severe emotional anxiety and distress. We get worried over everything these days. If our package doesn't arrive on time, if our favorite things don't get put in the grocery store, we have all kinds of anxiety. Here's Paul, though, unceasing anxiety. Not about God's sovereignty here, just about his people being saved. He knows God's sovereignty. He just taught us God's sovereignty, didn't he? In chapter 8, he'll do it again in chapter 9. But he still wants his 
people, the Jews, to be saved. He has such sorrow, great sorrow, unceasing grief. This word for grief is the same word in Luke 16, you know, where the rich man is burning with fire. And he says, I'm in great anguish here. Please let Abraham just touch my tongue with a drop of water. I'm in great anguish. That's what Paul has deep down in his heart. He's always carrying this burden around, this sorrow for lost Israel. Paul, who was hated by the Jews, the people that tried to kill him. And here he is saying, I have this great burden to see them saved, to tell them the gospel, to see them saved. Every time he went to a new city throughout Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, where did he go first? The synagogue. Even though he's an apostle to the Gentiles, he still took the gospel to the synagogue first and told them the truth of Christ. Even though they hated him, he still went. How many times do we have to, must tell the gospel to people who aren't going to receive it well, who are going to reject us, who are going to push back? Maybe our relationship will change with them. And yet we have to be bold, just like Paul was, and have a burden in our heart. That's really what drives us. Not just that we're strong and can be bold in the Lord, but that we have such a concern for lost souls. Secondly, the second truth here, Paul says in verse 3, he has a sacrificial love for Israel. It's a sacrificial love for Israel. The Apostle Paul loves his own people so much, not just that he's concerned and anxious, but he is willing to die for them if it were possible. He would give his life for them if it were possible. His eternal life for them if it were possible. Look what he says. For I could wish, in verse 3, that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ. That's strong language. Anathema, not just excommunication, like the Roman Catholics sometimes use that word, anathema. But this means, in ancient Greek, this means to be accursed, to suffer eternal damnation forever. That's what he's saying. For I could wish that I myself were eternally damned, separated from Christ for their sake. That's strong language. That's how much he loves them. Now, Paul knew it wasn't possible. He just told us a few seconds ago, if we were reading the whole letter, like the Church of Rome heard the whole thing read, it would have just been a few seconds ago, he told us at the end of chapter 8, it's not possible. That can't happen. You can't lose your salvation, Paul. Don't you know that? You just said you can't lose your salvation. Nothing. Neither height nor depth nor Christ nor God is going to take it away from us. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. But here he is saying this. Why? Well, you notice our translators help. It says, for I could wish. It's hypothetical. It's a hypothetical wish or prayer to God because he knows it's not possible. If we were to expand a bit on the translation, I wish if it were possible for me to so pray and if the fulfillment of such a prayer could benefit my fellow Jews, he would do that. In other words, he's willing to give up everything. Hypothetically speaking, it can't happen, of course, but hypothetically speaking, he's saying, I would give up everything if my people could be saved. The point here is he loved them so much. He's willing to give all that he had. He's willing to give his most precious gift. Yes, he loves the Lord. He would actually not do that, not be able to do that. But that's how much he loves them. He says something similar to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. So I will most gladly spend and be fully spent for your souls. If I love you more, 
am I to be loved less? He loved that church so much. That was a sinful church. They had drifted off. They were tolerating sin. They kept having all these theological problems. And he still says, I'd be willing to spend everything, every energy, every ounce of energy I have, all the money I had, everything for you and be spent to give my life for you. But an even better example is found in Exodus 32. If you can go there quickly, Exodus 32 is almost parallel to what Paul is saying. Paul goes stronger than Moses does. But you recall Moses went up on the mountain. And while he was up there receiving the Ten Commandments, the people decided it would be a good idea since they haven't seen him in a while. They don't know where Moses is. If he, maybe he's dead up there. And there's this powerful God with the cloud and the thunder. Maybe Aaron, his brother, should create a golden calf. And they'll call that Yahweh and they'll worship that. And God finds out and he's very unhappy. He's going to destroy the whole nation. Now look at Exodus 32 and let's just pick up there in verse 31. He says, Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made gods of gold for themselves. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. And Yahweh said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But now go guide the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. So Moses is interceding for Israel. Moses is saying, Lord, take my life and let the people live. Take my life so that my people will live. Your people, God. And God says, I will punish them eventually. But go ahead, get back on course and get moving through this wilderness. So Paul now, taking it even further, saying, I wish I was anathema, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, for the sake of, on behalf of. I would love to stand in their place if I could so that they would all be saved. To vicariously be in their place. And he calls them my brothers. It does not mean he sees them as spiritual brothers here. He's talking about natural brothers. You see, often when Paul says brethren or brothers, he's talking about spiritual brothers, the, the people in the church, fellow Christians. No, he's saying simply the Jewish people. And he clarifies what he's saying. So nobody's confused. My kinsmen according to the flesh. The kinsmen are belonging to the same people group. Your translation might say compatriots or, or kin, as we might say in the South, kin. Paul's fleshing out, though, this mission that he's been given. He's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's his primary audience. But he always went to the synagogues and go all the way back again to Romans 1.16. What did he say? Right before he told us about the righteousness of God. What did he say in Romans 1.16? How is he going to go about this? He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's going to take it to the Jew first, and then he's going to take it to the Greek. His kinsmen according to the flesh. He loved his people, and he wanted them to hear the truth of the gospel. Do we have this kind of sorrow for our lost friends, our family members? We're so worried about what people might think. They may not like us. If we tell somebody the gospel, they might really be upset. Paul had a great burden for his lost people. Do we have this kind of burden for the lost? We should. Number three. So we've looked at sorrow for the unbelief of Israel. Sacrificial love for Israel. Now privileges God gave to Israel. God gave Israel so many 
privileges, so many promises, so many gifts. And he explains why his burden and love is so great. They've been given so much. He wants to see them saved because they've been given all these promises in the Old Testament. It's not just because they're his kinsmen. Of course he loves his kinsmen. But look at what God has already told them in the Old Testament. He lists nine privileges. Nine privileges. And he's really just picking up where he started in Romans 3.1. He broke off there. But if you look at Romans 3.1, what advantage, he says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? What's the point of being a Jew? It's, it's not going to get you saved. He already said that in chapter 2. What's the advantage then? He says, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They're given the scriptures. God gave his special revelation to Israel. Then he breaks off and never gets back to the list. Paul often does this. First of all, point number one, and then there's never a point number two, until we get all the way here now to Romans 9, and he picks up the list. Nine privileges that God gave to Israel, all laid out in the Old Testament. First of all, and this is where all the rest are under, in a a subgroup under this main one, they are Israelites. They are Israelites. That's a privilege. All others in the list connect back to that. This is the name that his kinsmen like to call themselves. Today is similar, but especially in Paul's day, Jews was more of a description that other people gave the Jewish people. The people of Judah became Jews. You first see that in the book of Esther, when they come back from the exile to the land. Who are these people? These are the people who came from the kingdom of Judah, got exiled to Babylon. The Persians let them go back. They're Jews. And so when Paul's talking to the Gentiles in the letter and, and comparing Jew and Gentile, he uses that term Jew. But when he's talking to his own people, the name they like to be called was Israelite. Israelite. So we'll see that used a lot in chapters 9 through 11. This term Israelite or Israel. This comes from Genesis thirty-two twenty-eight. God says to Jacob, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So he says, my people who are Israelites, my kinsmen, they connect all the way back to Israel, Jacob, which connects back to Abraham and the promises that God gave to Abraham. And notice he does not say they were Israelites, as if they're no longer Israelites. What's the tense of the verb? Tenses are important. When it comes to theology, they are Israelites. Right when Paul is living, the same today. These are Israelites. These are the physical children of Abraham. They got called Israel. Some call them Jews. They are Israelites. He's not saying that God gave these promises to them. And the the promises still exist, but the people are no longer there. The people have changed names. No, they are Israelites. That's a privilege. Secondly, he says, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. Exodus 4.22 God tells Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my firstborn son go. And if you don't, I'll take your firstborn son, God says. Israel is God's firstborn, meaning the nation he chose out of all the nations of the earth. All the families of the earth that God created, he chose Israel. Now, this is not the same adoption that Paul talked about back in chapter 8. Chapter 8, we're adopted In the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. He changes our hearts. We believe. We repent. God adopts us as spiritual sons. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. 
But this is still adoption. But this is adoption of the nation of Israel out of all the nations. He didn't promise, and we'll come to this in Romans 9 through 11, that he would save every single Israelite. But he did say, I'm giving these promises to my firstborn son, the nation of Israel. This is not adoption of individuals as much as adoption of a nation. Out of all the nations, this is the one that God chose. That God chose to show his love to under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. Now, here's an error that sometimes you hear today. Some people say there's two ways of salvation. You can come to Christ as a Gentile or you can be born a Jew. And you don't have to come to Christ. Some people teach that. Some local brother large church teaches that. They even I heard have a wailing wall somewhere outside their building. That's not what Paul is teaching here. Just by saying adoption is sons, he's not saying that. He's saying that Israel received these promises. Israel's like an underage child who hasn't come into the inheritance yet. He hasn't received the inheritance. Professor John Murray from Westminster said, Israel under the Old Testament were indeed children of God, but they were as children under age. That's what Galatians 3.23 says. Go forward to Galatians 3.23. It's exactly what Paul says. They, Galatians want to be circumcised. They want to be Jews before they become Christians or add Jewishness to Christianity. Add all the things, especially circumcision. And so Paul's trying to tell them the right way, the right theology to have about this. And he says in Galatians 3.23, but before faith came, before the gospel went out to all the nations, believe in Christ and be saved. Before that message went out, he says, we, talking about the Jews, were held in custody under the law. We were under the Mosaic law. We were held in custody. Not that somebody couldn't trust in God and and fear God and fear Yahweh and be saved in the Old Testament. But he says, as a nation, as a people group, we were held in custody. And he says, being shut up for the coming faith to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law was a tutor. The Mosaic law was something like a tutor who would basically spank the kid to get him to class and to learn. He says, as Israelites, we were little children waiting for the inheritance and the law was driving us to Christ, pointing us to Christ. That's what it means here. They're adopted as a physical nation. And Paul is saying, look, you've been adopted as sons, but you haven't gotten the inheritance. And he'll get into more of that as we go throughout this section. Then he lists another one, the glory. The glory. The physical, bright, shining presence of God traveling with them through the wilderness. Remember the the pillar of cloud? The pillar of fire? Remember the, the glory that came down and rested on the ark when the temple was built and the ark was brought into it? God was in a special way with Israel. His Shekinah glory, his, his physical bright shining presence was sometimes seen and manifested only with one nation, Israel. Deuteronomy 14.2, Moses says, For you are holy people to Yahweh your God. And Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. We have this promise of being glorified someday. The disciples saw the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Paul was blinded by that glory. But we don't see the actual glory like Israel did. Every day they got up 
and moved through that wilderness for 40 years, they had a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And actually says, Paul does in Corinthians, that that was Christ, the rock, who was leading them. So they have the glory. They also have the covenants. These are the covenants given to Israel. Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, priestly covenant, Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. The covenants given to Israel. And of those that I just listed, that's pretty much all the covenants in the Bible except for the Noahic. It was given to all mankind. Of those, there's three that came with the mention of the Messiah. Let me run through those. The Abrahamic covenant, that's the big one for Israel. That's where God said, I will take you, Abraham, and all your descendants and make them a people and give them a land. And then he says, as part of the Abrahamic covenant, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, you already see the gospel right there. Through you, Abraham, there's going to, become, there's going to come a seed, a descendant, who will bless the whole earth, the Davidic covenant. God says in 2 Samuel, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build the house for my name. That sounds like Solomon, except he goes on to say, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Yes, Solomon will come. He will build the temple, but there's one coming in the future who will reign forever and he's going to build a spiritual house the church. And the new covenant promise, Ezekiel 36, 25. This is the wonderful promise of the new covenant. When we take the Lord's Supper, this is one of the things Jesus says we're to remember. The new covenant in his blood. What is this new covenant in his blood? Ezekiel 36, 25. Look at all these promises given to Israel. Now we receive these, by the way, as Gentiles. We, we get to have faith in Christ and get grafted in to this promise. Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean because we're dirty. We're sinful. And Israel was too. They had turned from God so many times. And God says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. Not like the old one. Not like the one I gave to Moses. This is a new one. You're going to be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. You're not going to keep going back to false gods because you'll love me and me alone. And then he says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. There he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Just a, you'll be a new person. You'll be a new creation in Christ, Paul says in the New Testament. I'm going to remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You have a hardened heart, Israel. I'm going to take it out and give you something new. And this applies, Jesus says, to the Gentiles who believe as well. And then he says, I will put my spirit, that's the Holy Spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. And you will inhabit the land that I gave to your fathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. The covenants, the covenant promises that we now as Gentiles, if you're a Gentile here, you get grafted in when you have faith in Christ. That applies to you. You got a new heart from God. The Holy Spirit came into your heart, changed it. You love Christ. You follow him. You want to live according to his word. You see the problem with Israel under the old covenant? They were trying and they were trying and they were trying to live out the commandments. Even those who loved God, even those who were called righteous were trying. They could not do it. And now the new covenant says, I will make you do it. And we say, amen. Make us, Lord. Give us what we need to obey you. He also continues the list in the giving of the law. 
This is all that Moses taught in Exodus through Deuteronomy, the Mosaic legislation given to Israel. And you might think, well, that's not really a great privilege. Oh, it is in ancient times. See, you're looking at the other side of the cross now. But in ancient times, all nations worshipped a God. All the other nations did not know whether their worship was accepted. All the other nations did what they wanted and hoped and prayed that their offerings were accepted. Of course, we know that they were really worshiping demons. But Israel didn't have to wonder. They didn't have to worry. They didn't have to wonder, how do we worship God? How do we obey God? How do we live out what God wants us to do? We're his people now. We've been redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. What do we do to please this God? And God didn't leave it up to them. It's like today. God didn't just say, here you go, church, do whatever you want, right? In the New Testament, he gives us specific commands. We don't have to wonder, how do we do church? Like, how do we worship? Do we just do whatever we want on Sunday? No, he gave us specific commands on how to worship him. In the New Testament, he did that for Israel. In the Old Testament, not just worship, but all of life. All of life. This was the Mosaic legislation. And it was a tutor to drive them to Christ. That alone is a great gift. The oracles of God. That's what Paul was talking about. Also, specifically, the temple service. All the sacrifices, the offerings, the cleansings. Of all the peoples, only Israel received the law and was able to come into the holy place of the temple and worship God. There was a place that Gentiles could come. But to go to the inner court, you need to be a Jew. To worship God that closely. All the nations sacrificed and tried to worship whatever God they believed in. But only Israel had specific instructions on how to serve God in his tabernacle, in his temple. And then Paul says the promises. This is even broader. This is all the promises attached to the covenants, plus what the prophets said, which are just pointing back to the covenants. The promises that a seed would come from Abraham and rule the world. The promise that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. The promise that God's servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. These are from Isaiah. The promise that God would dwell among his people, Emmanuel, God with us. Can you imagine if you're one of these nations in the ancient world, and you're just bumbling around in the darkness, and God comes to you and saves you from slavery and tells you he's going to come down and dwell with you someday? The God of all creation? That is a privilege. Only Israel had that promise. Then he says in verse 5, Whose are the fathers? These are the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God made a covenant with Abraham. He reaffirmed it with his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. Look at Romans eleven seventeen. What about Israel? This is where Paul's going to go. Are, are we as Gentiles, do we have Abraham as our father? Yes, he's already said that in Romans and he says that in Galatians. But here's how it works from an illustration. eleven seventeen. But if some of the branches were broken off, so God has, has grown this tree, a natural tree, and he's broken some branches off, unbelieving Israel. And you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And he goes on to say, don't boast. Don't think you're so great, Gentile. You've just been grafted in by God. You've been grafted in. Gentiles in Christ are children of Abraham. But here Paul's saying, Israel had the natural privilege of being the father's descendants. And all the promises they got, the descendants get as well. And he closes it out with one last privilege. This is the grandest of them all. From whom is Christ according to the flesh? God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
not only did you get all these promises, Israel, but Christ came from Israel in the flesh. This is a great statement. By the way, this is a statement about Christ's humanity and his deity. You see that? According to the flesh, that's his humanity. He was a Jew. But he's also God over all. And all these scholars debate about this passage, but I think it's clear here. A statement about his full humanity, his full deity. Christ was an Israelite. Remember the woman at the well? And she's debating with him because she's a Samaritan. And she says, let me throw a hard question at you. Where where, where should we worship? And he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Why? Because they're so awesome? No, because Christ came from them and he's the Savior. God even tells Israel, I didn't choose you because of you. I chose you because I chose you. That's his prerogative. He gets to do that. It's the same with us, isn't it? We weren't so great that God just, oh, that's a great looking guy there. I'm gonna, that's a great looking woman. I'm going to go ahead. That's a smart person. No, God elects according to his own sovereign purposes. And he did the same with Israel. He elected them as a nation. And eventually Christ, the Messiah, that's what it means. That's what Christ means. Christos is just a way of saying in Greek what the Jews said as Messiah, the Savior, the King, the one who would reign forever and ever. What a privilege. All these privileges. And Paul is saying, I love my kinsmen so much. They received all of this. I'm willing to give my life for them. They have all these privileges. This great burden is on his heart for his people. Tom Schreiner, commentator, theologian says, given that Israel was God's elect people, they were the recipients of his special affection and care in the past. They were granted promises of his saving righteousness for the future. Thus, their failure to realize these saving promises is all the more agonizing, particularly because it calls into question the faithfulness of God. So Paul's going to spend the next few chapters defending God's faithfulness. He's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to make good theological arguments. So if you want to know, how can someone have all these privileges and not turn to Christ? You've got to come back the next few weeks and find out. Or you can say it a little different way. How can someone grow up in a Christian home, that maybe the same home I did, have all this Bible knowledge, go to a good church, and still not come to Christ? Paul's going to talk about that. But I want to leave you with four applications real quick for you. You might say, well, I'm not Israel. Well, this still applies to your theology. You've got to think rightly. And Romans 9 through 11 is going to help you with that. But just in today's sermon, I want you to have a concern, and you should have a concern for the people in your life to hear the gospel. Parents, your children are right there in your home every day. They're in your home every single day. Get J.C. Ryle's book. That's the book of the month. Get whatever you need to help you tell your children about Christ. To tell your children about the Savior. That if they repent from their sins and turn to Christ the Savior, have faith alone in Him, they will be saved. Maybe you don't have children in their home, but you're taking care of your parents, or you have parents locally, or you have brothers and sisters or cousins or whatever. Your immediate family. Evangelize them. Have a concern for them. We're going to heaven if we believe in Christ, but what about our family members? What about our closest loved one? Secondly, think about the local area. San Antonio, Bernie, the greater San Antonio area. Millions of people live here. Millions of people believe in the wrong, wrong gospel. It's not gospel. It's works-based. Evangelize in the local area. Pray 
for evangelism. We've got all these new ministries starting around here at the college campus, door-to-door, downtown location, street evangelism. Get involved in that. Care about the local area. Have a burden for people who live here. It's great. Yes, let's pray for the people across the oceans in South America where we're helping to plant churches. In the Middle East where we have a man that's training up pastors. Let's send money. Let's pray for them. Let's welcome them when we see them. But let's also do that around here. Thirdly, around the world. Around the world. Let's support missions. It's not either or. It's not whether we send money and help send somebody out and train up a missionary here someday to send out somewhere or local evangelism. It's both. It's both. We do it here and we train up, send out, and support around the world. And then lastly, pray. And if you get an opportunity, evangelize unbelieving Jews. That's Paul's burden here. 12,000 Jewish people in San Antonio area. If you happen to know one, meet one, maybe you have a family member that is, pray for them. Tell them the gospel. Have a burden for them. Tell them about Jesus one more time. Even though they may say they know the Old Testament, get out Isaiah 53 and just read it to them. Because they probably never heard it. Or if they have, it was immediately rejected by the rabbi. Pray, evangelize, have a burden for lost souls. Lord, we ask that you would help us to do that, to be bold for the gospel, to be bold for Christ. This is about your glory on display, Lord, and we want to point people to Jesus. We know that you change hearts. We know that you sovereignly call, but it's our duty. It's something we should not just have as a duty, but a love to pray for and tell others of this wonderful good news of Jesus. Put that burden on our hearts, Lord. Help this church to be one that is evangelistic. Let us pray for all of lost Israel and let us be like Paul. Have an anguish and a sorrow in our heart until they are all saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.